0: Hello, all you Coens and Cohen mm. heads out there. Mm. And welcome back to another episode of the Coen Brothers Brothers. Who are you? Who are you? I'm Abe Epperson, <laughs> one of your co-hosts. This voice is the Michael Swaim voice and we are the titular brothers. <laughs> we're the eponymous brothers. Uh, today, we're coming off a long streak. We're coming off Lebowski no Brother. Mm. And talking about a more obscure movie, although I gotta say I was really heartened. You know, Barton Fink's one of our most listened to episodes. Yeah, it's so like people people care about the weird ones too.
1: Yeah, and this one's 2001's The Man Who Wasn't There, starring Billy Bob Thornton, Francis McDormid, James Gandolfini, Scarlett Johansson's in it. John Polito's in it. You it's started shaking your
0: head when you got to ScarJo. I agree. I think you're like I guess she's in it. Who cares? I mean. Used to get effect. I don't like it. Richard Jenkins is in it? Richard Jenkins. Now you're talking my Tony language. Tony Shaloub's in now it? Now you're monking me up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Tony Shalhoub, the best part of Taxi. And this really is a vehicle for Tony Shalhoub. <laughs> no. Um, I think uh, a fair amount of people listening probably will either <laughs> not have seen this one ever or need a refresher. So let's get right into Diegesis. Yeah.
1: I'll start with a kind of a log line-ish kind of thing. Okay. Uh, so our Billy Bob Thornton's character is named Ed Crane, who cuts hair in his in-laws' shop. His wife's a big drinker and maybe having an affair with her boss, Big Dave, played by James, James Gandolfini, uh, who has ten thousand dollars to invest in a second department store. Ed gets wind of a chance to make money in dry cleaning, and then a series of events that involve murder and bank or, and uh, uh, blackmailing you know happen that's that's,
0: almost the whole story that's a little more than a log line because it's a light story it really is a
1: meditative film which
0: is why we're mostly going to dwell in the pedagogy spectrum this time probably because i think this movie is not about what happened but questions like why did you present this to me artists Mm -hmm. Why that? What does this mean? (laughs) And and I
1: think it gets pretty interesting. Yeah, So so, follow along.
0: The basic plot that's presented, as Abe said, is I wouldn't say Ed hates his life. Uh, He is the man who wasn't there. He is a cipher. I don't think I've ever seen Billy Bob Thornton act less Mm -hmm. or or many actors act less. Well, ScarJo gives him a run for his money. Burn! But... (laughs) um, Billy Bob is clearly instructed to act very little, like he is an empty shell of a man just floating through life as a shade. Yeah. Uh, and so it's almost surprising when he takes actions or has desires, but he seems to desire a change in his life. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows money helps people get out of their ruts. Right. So when a client comes in, John Polito, who of course famously wouldn't accept high hats in, in Miller's Crossing, Miller's Crossing yeah. Uh Plays this great, like traveling businessman, small businessman who's trying to launch the idea of dry cleaning, which us sitting in 2018 know that's a good investment. Yeah. That really is. If he really invented dry cleaning, he'll be rich, even though he reads like a scam artist. Like you feel like Ed is getting scammed. Yeah. Um, But also, dry cleaning is a legit thing. So you wonder. Ed says, fine, I'll get the 10 grand by the end of the week. What he basically decides is to blackmail Big Dave.
1: James Gandolfini. Uh,
0: Yes. Um, I just forgot. Big Dave Brewster. Big Dan Teague was in the last movie we covered, but now Big Dave. Um, Because he's always basically known, he doesn't know for sure, but he's pretty sure, that his wife Frances McDormand is sleeping with Big Dave.
1: Right. So it it feels like it's justified to him. It feels justified on paper, but
0: what's funny is he earlier said, I know that she's sleeping with Big Dave, whatever, good for her. Like he doesn't. It's not out of pain, because he Mm. has no feelings. He just decided, here's a thing I can do, Mm -hmm. Uh, almost Fargo-like. So he tries to blackmail Big Dave, saying, I'll tell everyone what you did. Of course, Big Dave misinterprets this, because secretly, the way he got the ten grand to invest in his own department store was by stealing from his wife, who Mm. is actually the heiress who owns the department store Nerdlingers, where he's a manager. So he's been skimming from the company he immediately knows that it's Ed just because of the well, like, circumstances surrounding him. Oh, it, no, because he beats very, it out of the guy. He
1: be- Yeah, yeah, Big Dave does. Which um, is
0: circumstantial. So through happenstance, because of what I call small-town syndrome, like how the Seinfeld characters would run into Uncle Leo on the street, uh, the guy that pitched dry cleaning to him previously had just come from pitching dry cleaning to Big Dave, and Big Dave turned him down. So when, within the same week, he gets a letter demanding the exact 000. same amount of money, yeah. he's and he knows that that guy, John Polito, whose name is Creighton. Uh, C- Creighton Tolliver, Creighton Tolliver by sheer chance, saw him cheating with Francis McDormand, like at a hotel, at a seedy hotel. Mm-hmm. So through sheer chance, he knows that that guy has something to do with it, goes and beats him until he tells him, well, no, actually, this guy, Ed Crane, must have done it. And he invites Ed Crane over to have a talk in the middle of the night to nerdlingers. And I'm fudging some details because I want to get through to... Uh,
1: the part we want to talk Pedagogy. About. Yeah.
0: But the big event that really uh, takes the movie from being anything, because up to this point, it's just been like people existing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. But that, I mean, that's... Is the
0: altercation.
1: The altercation where uh, he confronts Ed at the store... Um, and attempts to kill him.
0: First, I think importantly, shows a whole range of human emotions. Yeah. Like, I do feel bad that I cheated with your wife. Yeah. I am sorry. But also, what kind of man are you to do yeah. this petty, piss-ant bullshit? Now I'm going to kill you. And I love the whole time uh, Billy Bob Thornton has no emotions. Like, literally the moment where he goes, you're found out. I know it was you, Ed. He He's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, and
1: so he's... So we have this little, like he's almost breaking the window. By the way, it's, it's going to come up later uh, when we kind of dissect the movie. It's a good red herring in the yeah, moment too.
0: You assume it's that's how he'll die.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, but while he's been while Ed was thrown across the um, ta- like his desk, Big Dave's desk, and stuff like that, you don't know about it. And that's another thing that's important to this movie is what you don't know and what you do know, or what you get through context, because everything is made by his voiceover. That's a huge proponent or component of this film is that you get Billy Bob uh, talks to us. Billy Bob talks to us and he gives us, uh, he gives us exposition, but it more or less reads like, Siddhartha from Herman Hesse like it's it's just these he's kind of like this Buddhist figure who's just saying and then this happened and then this happened and I thought this about that and isn't this crazy about humanity like it's more of like a journal entry written to no one um but in this moment you don't hear any voiceover Ed stabs Big Dave with like a cigar knife that he got from his desk
0: right Big Dave had a letter opener type thing dagger on his desk yeah that he said he took from a jap he killed.
1: Yeah. Uh, which will be
0: key later because Big Dave's also a liar. Is
1: all, yeah. And, um, and he stabs Big Dave Pompeii in the side and... of the throat. Big Dave bleeds out. I love the shot where it cuts to, right before you get stabbed, it cuts to like a shot of them up at top. And if you haven't seen the film, it's all in black and white. Uh, so, and they, they do a lot of amazing, like looking shots. It really looks like something from like a Harrell painting or something mm. from the 1930s. Um, at first you think there's people in the shop, but it's just the mannequins cause those are well lit right. and then nothing else is lit. And then obviously big Dave's office is well lit. And, and for this time when I watched it, I totally thought I was like, wait, there's people there. And then you realize that the people are facsimiles and then you realize they're totally alone. That's like a it's a cool little like haunting kind of thing of that at first, you think that, oh, there's a way to get out of this, and then you realize what the reality is, which is right. a lot of this movie, I think, that comes up a little bit later when they start talking about Schrodinger's cat and, you know, mm-hmm. Heisenberg and stuff
0: right, so also throughout this period before he kills Dave, Dave did pay up and before he confronted him because it took him a while to figure out who he was. So he has given the money to Creighton. Uh, important little minor note: Creighton like hit on him because uh, he's gay, and yeah, you, he
1: makes a pass just and at, he goes after Was the that deal's done. Pass? Was and, he that goes, a, and he goes, yeah, and he
0: goes, you're way out of line, line Buster, way, way out of line. line. Um, so he goes, that's fine. Uh, and then the other thing we've established is he meets Scarlett Johansson, who is the daughter of a lawyer in town. Well, he knows Richard Jenkins. Yeah, and uh, this actually happens before the death scene, so I'm just right, filling okay. him in. And he meets her while she's playing piano and he's obviously taken with her and with the piano piece and like how it's this beautiful moment. Not that he's in love with her, but he gets this weird paternal desire to be around her and like find out what her deal is. Right. And unbeknownst to him, he connects like, oh, you're Richard Jenkins' daughter. So he actually, I know Richard Jenkins. Uh, And in fact, of course, he has good reason to go consult Richard Jenkins because the next day Doris, his wife, gets picked up for the murder of Big Dave so he d- the consequences don't befall him because no one ever thinks about him or cares about him right. so it wouldn't occur to them that he did it and yeah. she's connected through the embezzlement and the inf- affair so weirdly, which we'll get into in pedagogy for some reason, even though he has no feelings he feels that he has to save her like that's yeah. what you do next, your wife's in prison you gotta get her out so he first goes to Richard Jenkins for advice, sees Scarlett Johansson, creeps on her a little bit. Richard Jenkins basically says, I can't help you with this. I'm a tort lawyer. You need a defense lawyer. The best defense lawyer available is this guy, Tony Shalhoub, who's not, I forget, whoa, what is his name? Freddie no?
1: Redenschneider?
0: Redenschneider. Schneider. Oh, yeah, he's the best. Best Schneider. Defense attorney from Sacramento. He is the best. So, Ed... And his brother, Frankie, or brother-in-law, Frankie, Francis McDormand's brother, who is the other barber at the barbershop mm. and who it should be noted is Babyface, the guy who played Babyface, Babyface Nelson, Nelson from Oh Brother. brother
1: yeah.
0: um, they decide to mortgage the shop to get all the money they can for Francis McDormand's defense. Cut to now we're in like a trial period where we're going to see what's Freddy Reed and Schneider's idea and how's the court case going to play out. Freddie Regenschneider brings up the idea of, well, what's funny is Ed admits everything, mm-hmm. but f- he says, well, I killed him actually. Why? For the money I wanted to invest it in something. And Freddie Regenschneider takes it as him spitballing a strategy. He's like, he's right, like right, right, he's like, right, uh, right. No, that doesn't really work for this reason and this reason. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to sick a P.I. on James Gandolfini, and we're going to do the classic character bring, take down. Like, maybe James Gandolfini's actually a bastard in the situation and deserved to die. The thing he comes up with is that it turns out James Gandolfini constantly lied about his service. He constantly, and he did, we saw it, talked about how he killed all these Nazis with his bare hands and saved people from grenade attacks and shit. And it turned out he had a desk job in San Diego the whole time. It's all hot air, yeah. So through that, Freddie Reed and Schneider really thinks he can get them off. Uh, The morning of the trial, they're all excited for proceedings to begin. Frances McDormand doesn't show up. And it turns out she hanged herself in her mm-hmm. jail cell, which again, I'm going to save for pedagogy because there's a lot to unpack about why. why, why From it... what we know about her, why'd she do that? Yeah, then? exactly. Uh, basically, Ed just goes back to his life and it's worse than ever because Frankie, uh, I forget what happens to Frankie, but he leaves the picture
1: Frankie uh, becomes he gets so despondent, deeply in debt, and drinking and heavily. Oh, he's because too drunk he, to be reliable anymore. Yeah, because his sister died. Right, so he has to hire another
0: barber to fill in. So now there's a guy who he hates even more than Frankie, who he hated.
1: I love that one line too, because one of the things that he hates Frankie for or he's is, a is that he's a chatterbox, constantly talking. And uh, Ed is the exact opposite. He just cuts the hair, um, but. He says about, uh, which the I think Kitty comes into hire. play later. Yeah. He's the new hire. He's like, I picked the guy who's the quietest. But turns out the guy was probably just nervous from the interview because the second that I hired him, he was just he just never shuts up. So everything's the same once again. It's as if you just replace one Frank with another. His yeah. life is literally the same. He also hasn't, as he uh, answers the questions uh, of the detectives, mm-hmm. uh, they ask how long it's been. Since they He had set uh, Because it's later revealed That when she hung her She hanged herself That uh, Francis Pink Dormant Was pregnant So they wanted to know If like when Was the last time that Ed, It's
0: another officer Comes off duty And is right. like I just felt you should know She no, was she pregnant No she was
1: pregnant But also like When did you have sex last Like and because like, they're trying To figure Years out. ago And he's like We uh, Yeah he's yeah. like Miss Crane and I, Mrs. Crane and I Had not had the sex act For, for several many years. many years Yeah And it's just like so. Nothing has changed about this guy's life, even though his wife died, and his and he should be in jail for murder. And he murdered someone. And he took money and gave it away. Oh, by the
0: way, in the midst of all this, of course, uh, Creighton Tolliver disappears with his money, and he assumes, "Well, I just got fucked." Then it turns out, no. James Gandolfini hates like is homophobic enough that he beat the dude to death. Like he said, I found him and beat him out of it, that homo. And then later you found out he beat him to death and like threw his body in a quarry or something. So the money's just gone to places unknown. Everyone involved in the scheme is dead. And he's never even once been like suspected of anything. He's just living his shitty life. Uh, And then all of a sudden he does get arrested. And I forget what fork, so I have to scroll. No, no, no. Uh,
1: Here's what happened. He didn't just throw... And this is one of the times that I actually... Oh, he gets arrested for the murder of Creighton Tolliver. Because he's in the trunk when... Uh, so let's go back a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. because it's two things happening at once. Uh, Ed's making... So apparently Big Dave put in the trunk of the car uh, Tolliver, or Tolliver's body... body. Uh, and Ed is simultaneously making regular visits to Birdie, who is played by Scarlett Johansson. Uh, Just because he's fascinated by Because it with her. Yeah. a teenage daughter of his friend, uh, yeah. to hear her play the piano. He, in his loneliness or whatever, uh, decides that he's going to help her start her music career and become some kind oh of manager. Oh, manager, could or producer. I forget? That's right. And so, obviously, when he takes. His fantasy is crushed when he takes the he takes Birdie to a music teacher. Says that she has no talent. He basically and the music teacher, I think, very importantly,
0: he says she has talent. He goes, "Did she make mistakes?" No, because this guy's a sociopath. He can't understand this. And the guy goes, "No, the note is the note. She plays the note." And he goes, "No mistakes. So it was perfect." And he goes, "No, but there's no. She has no heart or passion. Yeah, she's like a soulless." self-playing piano machine. And he's like, but no mistakes, I don't understand. It's like, of course you don't understand, you're that too.
1: As the uh, music teacher says, she'd make a great typist. You know, like it's just the...
0: And of course, he's uh, doubly devastated, I think, when his image of her is destroyed. When on the way back, she almost in a pitying way. like She's like, thanks for doing all the things for me. How about I no give one, you a blowjob? How about I blow
1: you? And, and he
0: loved her, of course, because of this idealized innocence. Yeah. So he's like, you're the one person in the world I would never want to have loses sex the
1: with. control the car and crashes. crashes. When he wakes up, the police are like, you did the crime because obviously you had in the trunk when we looked in your trunk. The body of Tolliver. Bod- and is one of you the- had
0: motive because he stole your
1: money. I just want to take one moment though. And mm-hmm. like weeks have passed. Yes. Since Big Dave's murder... Mm-hmm. To now, I don't understand how Tolliver is in the trunk. Wouldn't he be stinking it up a whole bunch? I didn't think
0: he was in the trunk. That's a detail that I missed. I thought he was in the trunk true.
1: because how else would the police? I thought it was that it. they
0: found his body somewhere and they found the money and okay. they put it all together. But it doesn't really matter. You know what okay, I
1: mean? Yeah.
0: All uh, right. Like, I feel like we can move ahead. Someone will correct us. Uh, and it's funny we did both just watch this movie, so it's another interesting thing to think about. Right. I don't. I know a lot of people who think this one's like forgettable in a weird way. I
1: think it's because you rely so much on the voiceover, and it's something that's just kind of left out because mm-hmm. he's knocked unconscious, and we he just wakes up to this craziness of being arrested. That he never really reflects on it, other than that this is what they told me. Yeah. So maybe they just didn't give an answer. Maybe he was thrown in a quarry. So after
0: Ed's arrested. He has to go even deeper in debt, mortgages house to get Freddie Riedenschneider back. Freddie Riedenschneider uses a strategy that he had discussed earlier using for Doris, which is also going to be one of the touchstone themes of the movie, which is he goes, some kraut named Werner or Fritz or something just invented this thing called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Yeah. <coughs> and it proves how the more you look at something, the more it changes. So he says, I'm going to apply that to the law and our defense will be, All we need to prove is shadow of a doubt, and we can't know what happened because we've analyzed the case so much, which, of course, is a ridiculous legal defense. Right. Like, oh, no, you've analyzed it so much now, how could you ever know what happened? Uh, It's not... These events aren't taking place on the quantum level. But anyway, it seems like that could or couldn't work, but the point is Frankie comes in and beats the shit out of Ed Crane in open court after he finds out Ed's involvement in all this shady doings, and that forces a mistrial because you need a new set of jurors when that happens. And when now he has to pay Freddie Riedenschneider again, which he can no longer afford to do. I just love this little detail of how the legal system's stupid. So he has to hire the cheapest lawyer possible. That lawyer just tells him to plead guilty and give up and go to jail. So that's yeah, what he does. Throw
1: your mercy onto the court.
0: It finally turns out, and I love this because again, I hate unjustified vo. All the VO has been an article he's writing for a men's magazine like Maxim or Playboy. Mm -hmm. They asked him to write an article about what does it feel like to be on death row. So he did. That's what the movie has been in retrospect compared to Vonnegut's Mother Night. Mm -hmm. Same ending. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he doesn't kill himself. He lets himself go on death row and waits until he gets the chair and experiences getting the chair. And doesn't it end with fading to white from him getting the chair?
1: Yep. Uh, he, oh, no, there's he a dream on sequence his fate, as well. Regretting none of his decisions and hoping to see Doris in the afterlife, both of them now free of the mortal world's imperfections. Right.
0: Um, briefly before he gets the chair, <laughs> he has a dream sequence where he walks out of prison and he's freed from prison. And when he gets outside, the prison spotlight becomes the beam from a UFO. Mm-hmm. And he sees the UFO in the sky and he seems to feel at peace. And that mirrors an earlier dream he had. Because the Big Dave's <laughs> widow came over and talked about how she thinks she's, she's UFOs, just nuts. Yeah. She thinks UFOs killed Big Dave. I mean And he starts regularly dreaming about UFOs after that.
1: Right. She's also reminiscent of with her big eyes that are really open. It's a disturbing shot. It's, yeah, it's because, really because that comes from like thing from another world kind of thing, like she looks like an alien a, Alien <laughs> people who are in some kind of involvement with aliens like are off a bit, you know, they, they don't act like us. It wasn't until the McCarthy scare that mm-hmm. we started saying like, but what if they were exactly yeah. like us? Um, so it, it's definitely a cinematic reference. Pedagogy. Yeah. That's the, point. all right,
0: let's dive right in. Cause it's basically just a guy tries to blackmail people, gets in over his head, gets sentenced and gets the electric yeah. chair.
1: And there's a few co- like things that and we your lead pass. Your and- lead is
0: very intentionally Boring as fuck
1: <laughs> <coughs> so what is Ed's flaw that he's has no soul, right? He has no soul, everyone else does
0: i th- I don't know, but we're gonna figure it out together, my friend okay, but yeah, at first blush, my thought was it's three <laughs> it' that it's at face value he's the man who wasn't there he his flaw is he was born without the normal capacity for feeling that we have. He might be literally a diagnosable sociopath.
1: Mm -hmm. I would say that that's all true. I think there's also on top- But there's a different flaw you're thinking of. (laughs) There's a different flaw because I I think that uh, that's what he's like born with, you know? Like if he has an incapability of feeling, that's one thing. That can be considered a disorder or a flaw. Uh, He's definitely inert, uh, but I would argue that it's because he's so passive. I think that his flaw is he he lacks things like ambition. He doesn't care to change things uh because he doesn't see the point in it. He is uh it's one of the first times that we actually I think ever see a a particular version of nihilism in a Cohen brothers film where it is debilitating for the main character. So apathy almost? Apathy I think is his Problem. Is that different than soullessness? I think this I think so. Um, I mean, maybe we could just, words are words. But sure. I think the reason that it's relevant in this is this is the one time, twi- I guess twice, where he tries to do something in his life mm-hmm. that is out of the norm, uh, and those being that he blackmails Big Dave, and then he also has the subplot of, he has a version or a avatar of Birdie in his head uh, yes. that she's going to become this great pianist. Um, As he keeps saying, of course, I'm no music expert, <clears throat> but the
0: subtext is but this is going to fix my life. I'm going to make her famous. Yeah. So if you agree with what I'm
1: saying, <laughs> it's saying that the film as a whole is about this guy who really is a passenger, of his own life, which is kind of what you were saying, but also that this is the, like the two times or at a very tumultuous time in his life, uh, instances in which he, he started to pursue ambition I think the more interesting question happens why he's trying to pursue ambition. Like obviously he's in this. Why care? Yeah. He hasn't cared before that much about Doris and her drinking and the fact that like she at one point there's a scene where she's in the uh, tub and he just cuts the hair like he shaves Shaves her her legs and and she acts like he's not even there. And that shot is recreated when they shave his legs to put the
0: electrodes on so that he'll die. (laughs) when he's plugged into the electric chair and again it's echoing they are treating him as an object they're just shaving his legs he's he's ever
1: the barber he's this guy who provides a service that you know some people like frank choose to take that time to make it like a social kind of thing but he prefers not to talk at all and he doesn't see the point in that so he's just gonna cut the hair yeah but definitely if you know billy bob like the guy
0: can't act he's a psychotic asshole but he can act yeah he can so like if you compare this billy bob to bad santa billy bob it's different <laughs> bad santa is depressed this guy's not even depressed he's numb Empty, yeah, he's completely which can be numb. A, a phase of depression but this guy doesn't even have the air of a depressed numbness this guy has a piece missing from him
1: (laughs) i want i want to read three lines short lines that are all ed lines that kind of deal around this topic or it's at least ed reflecting all about his passivity which is once and these are i believe all voiceover none of them are actually said in the world uh that we see life has dealt me some bum cards or maybe i just haven't played them right i don't know another one that he says is he told them to look not at the facts, but at the meaning of the facts. Then he said that the facts have no meaning. And that's referring, of course, to uh, uh, his lawyer. Who's going to use the uncertainty who's principle Who's going to use the uncertainty win, principle. Yeah. And the last one I liked is, the more you look, the less you really know. It's a fact, a true fact. In a way, it's the only fact there is. And I think that... Socrates would agree. I know. And <laughs> I think with those three... Uh, None of them are nihilistic by design, but you take all three of them and that means you have a guy who's, he doesn't know why he's in a bad spot. You don't get a feeling that he cares too greatly, but he doesn't seem to like it. Although uh, yeah. dealt me some bum cards is like saying like ah my life's a little kind of shitty and then you tell and then looking at the facts but not the meaning facts the me the things the spin that we put on things mm-hmm. in order to make that there is a purpose to something or a point to something, um, we use these little games uh, to try to convince ourselves that it's not true that nature is just cold and heartless and the last quote being kind of the only fact that he believes there is is that you don't know things, the unknown. And that's the true uncertainty principle quote.
0: Right, but then, yes, I agree, and Socrates would agree, who said, like, I'm the smartest man in the world because I know one thing, which is that I know nothing, and no one else will admit that, Right. if Socrates indeed ever existed. But the logic is sound regardless. Um, And yet, you have to have you got to get up and have society function some way. Like, we got to do something. Um, I actually think our trial system is really fucked, but there has to be some system of something. I don't agree that you can apply the uncertainty principle to the justice system, and I think it is kind of tongue-in-cheek that Freddie is trying to do that. Uh, And yet, of course, they are saying, and yet in life it is true that the Mm. more you look, the more doubt you'll find. I also think it's interesting that it's not fully true that he never has... He has one period where I would characterize him as emotional on the scale of what he can show, which is after his wife and child, not his child. sorry, after his wife hangs herself. yeah it he doesn't experience grief as a normal human being would, but he does experience like like Holden Caulfield from uh, Catcher in the Rye They're all he experiences his own dull version of some kind of melancholy because he says, I was a ghost, I didn't see anyone, no one saw me, I was the barber. And for the first time in my life, I had secrets and I did feel like talking about them. So even though he thought Francis McDormand held zero value in his life Mm. and Frank holds zero value in his life, even this man feels lonely when those things are gone. Like Even this guy notices that he's like, well, actually, it is... Like it, like you said, my ritual is the same, but worse. It is worse. E- even though I'm incapable of grieving that she hanged herself, I wish she was at home when I got home. Right. And specifically, he wishes he had someone to confide in about all the shit he knows. So he goes to a psychic, which I think is a really important tangent scene, Right. because it's uh, the most emotion we ever see from him, acting-wise, are in these back-to-back <laughs> scenes. He goes to a psychic, and the psychic tells him, that his wife loves him very much and wants to him to know that from the afterlife. And he's like, you're fucking phony. Yeah. And he's slightly angry, which is the most um, anger we ever see. Then he goes to Birdie and tries to convince her to go see this guy to get her musical talent evaluated. Uh-huh. And I would argue in that scene, he also shows more emotion than he ever
1: showed it's still <laughs> he's subdued. angered by the fact that his version of but birdie he's like is not pleading sure. with her to do it yeah and yeah. then when she tries to go down on him he, heavens to betsy you Heavens know, to like, betsy birdie uh, you know it's like uh it's this he, everything's going wrong for him at this point and it's the to- first time he's tried i think it's all coming down to kind of more or less a midlife crisis because i like your point a lot about how it, the ritual is the same but like Things have changed enough that he now sees the value to, like, social interaction or, like, having hopes or dreams, mm-hmm. whereas he didn't before. It's not that he doesn't believe there isn't any purpose, which is, I think, where we're coming from. But mm. where we're going now is that he believes that there's small little... I see I see the uh, purchase of these purposes. Like, I see why that there's like, value to it. I don't but, love anyone and no one loves me, yeah. but I can see why other people might enjoy it. Right. So he's flirting <laughs> with it. And that's kind of a midlife crisis. I right. mean, that's he's like,
0: maybe birdie could be my, I don't know, daughter. something. Yeah. yeah. And here's something
1: that's interesting. I felt is that if you believe that this midlife crisis made tangible for Ed is this, uh, ScarJo B plot, it's that he, uh, bills, this kind of narrative for what like she is, And definitely what she isn't, uh, things that he thinks that she isn't. And, like, she has never shown enthusiasm for the piano. Uh, Another one is that he thinks that she's going to be, like, a concert pianist um, Mm -hmm. right off the bat. Uh, He's making her a passenger in their interactions, much in the same way that most people in the movie treat him. Like, this is what's going to happen now for you, which is what his wife does to him he's now doing that to S- Scarlett Johansson's character. Uh, it's like, he's tired of it, he can't make sense of it, and he's just mimicking he what just he believes the wor- makes the world chance. work. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. really know her at
0: all. Uh, and I love that the moment their relationship first starts to crack is based around his habitual prop, which is, Billy Bob is never not smoking a cigarette right. in the entire movie. And you wonder sometimes, cause, and you remember, oh yeah, it's the 40s, because it'll be somewhere in a room full of just children chain-smoking, and you're like, no one says, can you not smoke here? It's weird. Oh, yeah, it's the 40s. The only person to ever say, oh, could you not smoke in here is Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. And that's the moment where he's like, what? Okay. Like, of course I'll do it because I'm yeah, trying to impress but you. He doesn't, but from yeah. that moment forward, we see further and further, oh, you're not exactly as I pictured you, and that fucks it all up for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I also think it's very important to note that which at first was trippy for me, and I love that. I thought it was surreal, and then when the reveal is she's practicing for a recital, I'm like, of course, because she only ever plays one Beethoven sonata, uh-huh. always only yeah. that, to the point where it's like 30% of the film's score is that Beethoven sonata, <laughs> and she plays it, like the teacher says, competently and fine, but like nothing <clears throat> impressive. And every time you ever see her, that's what she plays. And at some point you're like, is she that person at the party who can only play for Elise? So they play for Elise. But it's like, no, she's practicing for a because she has to pass band class. Then she'll never play piano again. Like she says, Mr. Crane, I don't know if you know this, but I have no interest in playing piano professionally. And he like never even stopped to ask her that or wonder. That's not his concern. Uh, But I just love also that it's a, the piece she plays is a classical piece versus a romantic piece. And classical music's often broken up into classical, which is like pieces run by rules and order of what makes music sound good, and romantic where they started jazzing it up a little. And, ch- and <laughs> he's, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun. Like music that made you angry and made people riot in the streets. Right. She's playing like a very prosaic Piece non that is straightforward. Yeah, he likes that, and he's like enraptured by it. Like right. it's amazing. Yeah. Right, right. Because and I, she plays at the recital, and of course, after the recital, he tries to come up with her, to her, and she's flirting with a seventeen-year-old boy, like right. a seventeen-year-old girl would normally be doing. Yeah. And he's like pissed. I don't like that the world is this way, yeah. That's that's what it... He doesn't know what he wants. Because he doesn't want to have sex with her, but he doesn't want anyone else to be interested in her right. either.
1: That's why I think he does what he does to her, is that in this midlife crisis where he's starting to realize, like, the mechanizations of what makes the world work. Mm-hmm. He makes this he like essentially makes this form of complicit like abuse and causes her to be lower status even though she's just like all right fucking whatever. Mm-hmm. Like um he's like a ghost and he doesn't understand why. Mostly I think it's because he's boring, but I think the Cohen brothers are saying something about Uh, how the world is a bunch of people that are like selfish, which is what big Dave does, which everyone definitely has clear wants. They all want to break out of their ritual. What Freddie does. Like, so I get that. Like, for example, I don't want to, I've never really been struck by the interest of having kids personally, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like I, it just never occurred to me that that's a thing that I should do or
0: have to do. Right.
1: The fact that people find that the next step, uh, or some kind of success in, uh, in that, Arena is kind of foreign to me. I think that's as foreign the idea of ambition and being interesting and telling a story, or even engaging with life. Engaging with life yeah. is uh, equally as foreign to Ed Crane in this situation. So, do you think there are people like that, or I is think he an that exaggeration? He is, I think that's the thing. Is surprisingly, there like you walk into a movie that's called The Man Who Wasn't There, and you expect to get a long treatise of why. He actually was there.
0: But society overlooked him. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, that's not what this film is about right. at all. Agreed. This film is about how if he's basically they're Plato's caving us, or they're mm. uh the Einstein it comes up, we're gonna talk about the uncertainty principle in a second. But like there's this one analogy that uh Einstein used to make people understand of why like getting some distance from stuff. Uh, like he talks about the like speed versus acceleration and witnessing, a someone riding a bike and mm-hmm. how it's instantaneous. And you take a photograph of that person there, but then you wait a little bit and take a photograph there. He's basically doing a zoetrope of like, that's how we understand trends is we take instantaneous plots of and moments. Our brains
0: interpolate data points. Yeah. And we do the yeah. same thing
1: with that kind of science. And that's, um. I think that's what Ed is not only doing, but I think that Ed is the control group a little bit. Well, maybe not the control group, but he is, if you take that all out of life, if you basically are this American Buddha who just is looking from afar and also kind of looking inward, but he's not like a part of the human race, Mm -hmm. um, that's what this movie is trying to do. It's trying to talk about how society does things and how society... Uh, is selfish in such a way that it creates people like Ed Crane to actually, like, people think that they're real people, but they aren't.
0: And he'll take an action like embark upon a blackmail scheme, and if you ask him, like, why, why? Yeah. the real answer, if he was honest, would be like, I'm bored and it's it occurred to me and it's the kind of thing I've seen people do in movies. So right. I get it.
1: More or less, you know. Yeah. Like I heard from Doris that we should get more money. So I did. I it. think that da- Big Dave sucks, but I also think that Big Dave is seen as important right. because he has money and he has stories. So and I'm I gonna guess I want to be important. This.
0: Not even because I feel that I want it, no. but it's something to do. It's what the rest of <laughs> yeah. us are doing. It reminds me of how in Fargo, Jerry Lundegaard yeah, could be perfectly. Great. He has a like, a <laughs> wife and child and a stable job. There's nothing stopping from him from just being satisfied and happy. He's the one who has an internal desi- des- decision that is no, 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 no. I need more than this. This is bad. This is failure. I have to do something fucked up to get more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that Ed, whereas Jerry has that, he feels like a desperate animal passion to right, do that. Right. Ed just. Decides to do that calmly. Right. Very interesting.
1: Uh, there's another quote I wanted to read about Ed Crane, unless you had, I mean, it's the same topic.
0: Well, the quote I was going to read that also appears I love Frankie's improv at the beginning when they told him just to talk a lot, and he's talking to the little kid his hit Harry's cut, and he goes, <laughs> No, this is what I'm saying. See, is these fur trappers, you see, they would capture and skin the animals, you know, and they bring them <laughs> down and they trade them for gold ignots. <laughs> Ignats Instead of ingots, <laughs> Ignats They yeah. would take these Ignats
1: <laughs> And it's also uh, kind of like the process is also kind of the same. Like yeah, at the beginning of the film, he goes through all the f- like 12 types of haircuts that one could get at this time. It looks, hey gamers out there,
0: it looks exactly like in Grand Theft Auto when you're getting a haircut, scrolling or through the haircut. Red 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 Redemption. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's,
1: it's exactly the same. And that's how, like I want that. You can just point to a board. And Ed Crane, Crane can do... He will play the most boring but technically perfect sonata of your hair ever. That's what this guy is. He's good at cutting hair. Also interesting,
0: he says, I worked at a barbershop, but I never considered myself a barber. I stumbled into it or married into it more precisely. Well, if you don't consider yourself a barber and you're a blackmailer, but you don't consider yourself a blackmailer and you're, you know, like, you're not, what are you? He doesn't consider himself anything. He has abstain from adopting an identity in life. Right. Uh,
1: I also think that there's a great quote near the end, uh, which I think you referenced before. Uh, Ed says another in voiceover. It's like pulling away from the maze. When you're in the maze, you go through willy-nilly, turning where you think you have to turn, banging into dead ends, one thing after another. But you get some distance on it, and all those twists and turns, why, they're the shape of your life. It's hard to explain, but seeing it whole gives you some peace, He's making an observation about observation. He's not making an observation about his life. So and this when, is at
0: the moment of his death, by the way. When
1: confronted about what, like, usually what most people talk about on their deathbed or the, mm-hmm. as the story goes is things like regrets and successes. The shape of my life was like this and I'm happy about that or I'm sad about that. But he, he doesn't has say no, I'm happy. He has no observation on that. His only observation is about, huh? It's funny that, given some time and space, you see that you see the shape yeah. of things.
0: Did you know before you die, your life flashes before your eyes? Oh, what do you think about that? Nothing. I just noticed it. I just noticed <laughs> yeah. that that's
1: true. Which is, although, uh, how an alien might think. May, that's true. Maybe
0: he's an alien. <laughs> I don't want. I want to compartmentalize that because I still have more on Ed himself. But we'll definitely talk about aliens. Mm-hmm. Um. But I want to point out that in that moment, he does say something that is more human than you expect him to say, which is the final line, which is, as it fades to white, I don't know where I'm being taken, but I'm not afraid to go. Maybe things will be clearer there. Maybe Doris will be there. Maybe Doris will be there. And there I can tell her all those things they don't have words for here, which is interesting to me because... I got no impression that he really cared about Doris at all. And yet in his dying moment, he somehow wants to connect to her in a real way. (laughs) But it also occurs to me that he might just be having his brain ritualize the types of thoughts he expects someone who's being killed on death row to have. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like he's literally playing a role thinking the thoughts that he thinks the men's magazine would think he would think.
1: Right, (laughs) right. Which is, um, I'll go up to heaven
0: now and I'll see my wife, I guess. Which
1: is, (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, or maybe I don't think I'm that unique. Or uh, did he grow a
0: heart in that moment? I don't understand. We've
1: all kind of done that. Like, we don't do it as our, in this case, Ed Crane does that all the time. But, like, everyone's kind of done the thing where it's like you're confronted with, like, an amazing grief or something like that. And you're like, shit, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, It's uh, kind of like in Magnolia with P.T. Anderson where he talks about, you know how Philip Seymour Hoffman says, you know it's that scene in the movie where... So stupid it it, matter. I know it is, but it's a great moment because it's true. We've all kind of had that thought where we go like, well, technically grief is just motions, and if I can just go through that, do I get through my grief? Like what what, the chicken or the egg kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Or is it just, should I just let it all out right now? He's definitely... Ed Crane is the exact opposite of a guy who would just do something willy-nilly. Yet here he is talking about he thinks he's doing things willy-nilly, but he's never really done anything. Right. And
0: especially I love how even structurally if you follow like noir logic or like plot logic, uh, a writer would, a good writer, quote-unquote, following the rules, quote-unquote, would tell the Coen brothers – you made your protagonist literally a character who structurally doesn't need to exist because mm. even though he did the blackmail, mm. Creighton Tolliver had already talked to Gandolfini and seen him cheating, and like I I wrote down all the logic, but trust me, it tracks. He didn't need to do anything for them to; they would have reached or at least conflict. Those eventually. roles could
1: be parsed to someone else in the story.
0: Exactly, it's like. Um, Creighton could have just run into James Gandolfini and that would have happened anyway. Oh, that's what it is. It's that all you would have to do is say, we'll eliminate the Ed Crane character and have Creighton Tolliver blackmail him, Mm because he totally would. But instead, Ed Crane's just this weird middleman who insinuates himself into the plot.
1: Uh, The one thing I can think of is that uh, were it not for Ed, would Doris have... Like, I want to talk about how Doris feel. Like, why does she kill herself? Because what does she feel about Ed? My th- only... Th- well... Because that's the one character that... Right. Uh, yeah. It would take away from that. Because her grief and her... And I think you kind of need Ed to be there.
0: There's something illuminating, actually, about when he visits her in prison, I think. When uh, right, right. she exactly. says, do you want to know, Ed? Do you want to know why I cooked the books? And without saying it, it's implied and cheated on you. Like, I think the movie in large part is about, as is fitting with the title, but they're they're accusing all of us of being a little Ed Crane, is abdicating the opportunities you had in life to actually engage with a fellow human being. Right. Um, and that's the shaving the legs. He had a, this chance at intimacy with his wife, and they both ignore it and let it pass. And then when his legs are getting shaved... As he's about to die, it's basically saying, Yeah, and your whole life has been that interaction. Yeah. Because in prison, she's like basically saying to us, the audience, Do you want to have the big emotional scene now? Do you want me to break down and go, I cheated on you because you've never shown me enough affection? Right. And then you yell at me, and then we reach some kind of equilibrium. Yeah. And his response is just, You don't have to tell me anything ever. (laughs) Like so, like again, it's he could have been the man who was there. It's a choice to not be there. Right. Um, But the only thing I could gather about why she killed herself is, and I want to know if you have a better answer, because the things my mind grasps at are just like, well, maybe the shame of having James Gandolfini's child out of wedlock after he's dead is just more than she's willing to live with out in the real world maybe she literally doesn't can't imagine what she and Ed are going to do like what will life be like after this but these are all like rooted real human which i think maybe maybe that's the point is that she does emo- things based on emotional impulse so they don't have to make sense cuz i do think one of the most powerful uses of a character in this is Frankie as a foil to Ed cuz they have that tangent where they go to the wedding of her cousin who she hates and you see that in every part of life, including when he's grieving for Doris, Frankie fully engages emotionally with the moment. And you get the impression that his life is very rich and full as a result. Right. Like he lives big. He really People is. buy yeah. into his narrative. And people love him. And yeah. even, even when he's, he's sick fo- on
1: he's a phony. Even when know? he's sick on pie, he's making jokes and being a good guy. Right. Yeah. Everyone loves that part of him. And it's like, um so it's basically the anti Holden Caulfield. Uh, this yeah. movie it's like saying like if you dwell so much on the mechanizations of the apparatus and say like well that's silly that's just that and you say you know what i'm not going to participate in that aspect of life why because i find it stupid or i find it blank or i don't think about it anything at all because mm-hmm. why would you do that you are now keeping a section of life out of yeah. you you know like so and like we do saying, it all the time sometimes no, no holden Caulfield, you're the phony yeah. <laughs> like i don't believe in crystals for example like like emanating cheering you. magic powers yeah. Yeah. i don't pl- particularly believe in that now if we're to use this analogy i may be right or wrong but the point is i have shut my down myself down to like i i will never experience what it means to uh, or you even get the placebo effect the off placebo it. The placebo effect right. or anything like that, whatever, I believe, it doesn't matter. I've just closed that door. Um, I think with Doris, I think a little bit different. Uh, I think that what you said is kind of true. But remember that she's also, she's cheating with Big Dave enough that they're, it's probably an accident because obviously it would create a lot of problems for both sides that she got pregnant. Um, I think that that pregnancy probably could have played a little bit of a role, but I don't know if she knew that, or even if she knew that going into prison, we don't know. But what we do know is that she was an alcoholic. So she had some either bored inconsistency aspect of her life that she didn't, was unfulfilled. Probably. Is. And she filled <laughs> filled it with a bottle. And yeah. with the thrill of extorting and shit like that. <clears throat> right. And I think then, it's
0: interesting sorry but just real quick the seminal cornerstone of their marriage was they went on one date and two weeks later she said we may as well get married yeah and he said so soon you don't even know me and she goes what does it get better is there like something i haven't seen which is such a great and he goes no i guess fine let's get married so like it didn't start as like a thrilling romance (laughs) right
1: i fucking love that line what does it get better better? because it's just like (laughs) Holy well then don't shit. get married to yeah. me, Jesus. So she's honestly like perfectly suited to being a wife to someone like Ed because she obviously does Or doesn't maybe care like him, that. she
0: thought she was, and now she does feel the hollowness Exactly. Of That's it. what yeah.
1: I'm I think that she is um. I think that she is basically his when we see her hang herself, it's a combination of things, but it's also that she felt that she was a participant. And now that Big Dave's gone. And she, all she's got is Ed, who just doesn't even care if she should
0: be... Even in like, like even in the bad way. He doesn't even seem to care that she betrayed him. Like, she what wants should something out of What should I do? Should I do? Yeah.
1: Something. And she realizes that she has built for herself a life that she was conducive to people like that. And she hated herself. I think that's what comes out of this. So she's alone. Peep- she's alone. And what comes out of this is, I think... I think Ed Crane hates himself a little bit. She even, even got on end. that
0: single mom tip. Right. You got a kid coming. That can be a very rewarding
1: relationship. Right. Well, she doesn't necessarily Post a know Tinder that, profile, but... girl. Get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that, uh, I don't know. I think Doris is the most interesting character in this whole thing because she chooses to take her own life versus Ed, who mm-hmm. is just such a passenger that even at even on his deathbed or his death chair, uh, he... Yeah. Is still just making observations that an, any alien could make about a human right. struggle. Which reminds me a lot of a book I
0: hated that since became one of my favorite books. So I uh, super do recommend *The Stranger* by Albert Camus if you care if you think boring plots are boring. But if you are mature enough that you can care about what is it to be numb mm-hmm. and why is he numb and what are the reasons in his brain, *The Stranger* is the I would call this and The Stranger the two masterpieces of alienation. Didn't
1: they say this is kind of loosely based on The Stranger? I didn't read anything like that, but like it's got to be. I mean,
0: The Stranger in The Stranger, he also eventually gets executed, and the central premise of The Stranger is the you're the protagonist is you. Like you're in his head very thoroughly the whole time. One day he's on the beach and he sees a guy and he has a gun in his hand by chance because of previous instances. And the sun gets in his eyes, and he feels hot and uncomfortable, so he shoots the guy in the head. Mm. And the revolutionary thing about the book at that time was the <laughs> supposition that that can be the reason. It doesn't, you don't have to explain the heart of man. It could be that the he got so hot that it made him so uncomfortable that he did something crazy, because he was numb in that moment, and he made a weird choice. Uh, and I think there's a lot of insights into it. Although very unlike this movie, at the end of The Stranger, the big payoff is he does come to a very... I would say uh, The Stranger is like if Ed Crane learned his lesson. <coughs> like uh, The Stranger is more traditional only in the sense that as he's facing death, it does enkindle in him regrets and realizations about how you should connect with life and what he lost. Whereas Ed Crane doesn't. seems to just sail off into the stratosphere. with Yeah. He
1: kind of has this yeah. blase hope that things are going to be better, but right. he doesn't seem, maybe heaven will be good. I guess he doesn't have any certainty of that's it. That's what I've and heard. He's, yeah. <laughs> he, he's real neutral about whether or not it's going to happen and whether or not he cares because he's become so numb that that's his like defense strategy, I think.
0: And I do think they are trying to say this is their modern alienation movie because a resonant line throughout is what kind of man are you? aimed at ed frankie says right. it and dave says dave it says francis it. says it and also tony Shaloub constantly says in his closing arguments that he is the modern man so i think they're saying as i said like that's their code for like they're accusing us of we all inhabit ed sometimes mm-hmm. uh, which is to be alienated so let's get into that do you think it's as simple as this movie's about a bunch of people who are aliens so let's throw in some alien imagery are you asking about specifically why the Yeah, let's UFO? get into the UFO iconography. Uh, and I promised I'd do this last episode. But now a brief interlude to, for me to shit on the Fargo FX show. <laughs> Season one I thought very strong. And believe me, I love me some really subtle Cohen Easter eggs. But the fact that one of the Fargo FX seasons, I don't know if you've seen this far.
1: Yeah, I've seen it.
0: Okay. They took this very subtle nod to Man Who Wasn't There, which is a Coen Brothers movie very few people have seen, that in Man Who Wasn't There, he dreams about a UFO. And they literally ended the season, which is a, like a true crime story unfolding, by having UFOs just come and fix everything. Mm. And I can see how the writer could argue... Well, it's a nod to Hudsucker, how God just comes and fixes it at the end. It's a nod to... The man who wasn't there. The man who wasn't there because there's a UFO, but fuck you. The Coen brothers would not end shit with a UFO just coming. I don't know. I hated the end of that season. It killed me.
1: Yeah. And I think it's it's funny to them. I think the UFO is funny to them, but uh, in this movie... And I think that it's definitely fresh to have a movie from this era
0: where the widow goes... I think it was UFOs. You're like, that's an interesting element
1: to throw in. Right. I think that's where it really comes from is, um, it's the fact that this whole time it's been stream of consciousness and he's on death row. And like you said, it was a dream. Um, so it's not the Buster Scruggs, Vignette number two with James Franco, where he sees the girl before he's hanged. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not where the Coen Brothers typically like to give you. Like, and then all of a sudden, like that's just yeah. the way it happened. It just happened. He uh, he sold a thing to Reader's Digest, and he saw a UFO, and then he died. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's. I don't think that's what this is because they put it in a dream sequence. But I think it's um, him doing. His brain doing, the, his subconscious doing the churning. That is all of the component parts of this film noir, essentially, uh, that are just random and haphazard and definitely made up of the things that Coen Brothers like to uh, to write about, which is that just random currents sometimes dictates what life is. Uh, he, I think, is his subconscious is pulling that thing about Big Dave's wife, about. She is also seen as a stranger like notice at the that uh the dinner party. Oh well. Every, everything is Doris and Big Dave. She's a fucking weirdo and no she's one approaches her. She's like, a weirdo. She never lady. really talks until the UFO thing. That's her like one big
0: thing. And you assume she's there to accuse him of murdering Big Dave because it's pretty right. clear. Like it's not a hard case right. to crack. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I think that he sympathizes with her a lot uh even more than he real- he doesn't realize it until later he has the guilt for other strangers. I think that's mm. what the UFO's is representing is that he is pulling this like random memory access to this uh woman that he's fucked in her entire life up with his actions. And he is the UFO sequence is the reason why it's a heavenly light, the reason why he's getting free, freed from prison, from prison, not like running out of prison, not by his own doing, not like getting out. It's not like he's fantasizing that his
0: alien buddies will get him literally out of prison. It's
1: very specifically like just by random magic, he is out of prison now. And it's not that he's running away, but he feels free because the UFO is there. The passenger, once again, the passenger side of freedom. It's like he got out of freedom because he did everything he was supposed to do. Uh, Off screen, I guess, in his dream. But it's not like he's dreaming. Because usually, I think if you were in prison, you would dream about getting free by your own gumption or whatever. The UFO is a form of heaven to him. And it's this thing that verifies this crazy stranger that he's met once and how, and the guilt racked up about how he screwed her over. And he's seeing it as like a heavenly thing. Like he, he, at the moment that you see the uh, the, the UFO and its clearest, mm. he literally says the word clarity. Yeah. Like, it, it's... Um, and I think that's...
0: Yeah, I have multiple interpretations. Uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it is... Does work... It probably works on multiple levels. I think it does work on the level as simple as it's a movie about alienation, so there's aliens. Sure. But I also think that is because it's not what they are, but it's what he actually... Aspires to be or have either an authority, like he's so lost about how to navigate this that the only thing that could save him would be an authority figure from beyond the stars to just do it. Right. Day or Six uh maybe he wants to be an alien because that's the best he can hope for, because aliens are the life form that would look down on us and experiment on us and see us like rats in a maze. And he talks he enshrines the idea of I'm going to go up and I'm going to look down and things are going to become clear. So it's almost like he tried to conquer life by figuring it out, by getting further and further away from it to get a clear look at what is life, when in reality, the only people who actually live fully engaged lives, most of the time are not, they're trying to get closer to life and revel in it. And then there's moments where they look back and wonder what it was about. But he spent too much time treating it like a test, like being an alien right. and observing everyone. I,
1: that's because he's not outside of life. And I think that people have the like clearest version, like us looking yeah. through a microscope, looking at a microorganism, the clearest look at it would be that you're a UFO, would be mm. that you're an alien, which kind of gets now to the biggest thing that I think this is about, uh, which is uh, not... Just like it's manifested by the physics principle of uncertainty, but it also has to deal with this: does the observation of something change uh, its reality? Mm. And I think very much so, it does. Uh, and I think in that doesn't compute in Ed Crane's world. But that's still because that's mean, all he's
0: ever done and nothing's changed for him. Still doesn't mean we can get murderers off the hook because right. well who knows if the atoms well, were there. <laughs>
1: that's I mean, I think that's just a colorful scene of you know, Tony Shalhoub being killed like killing sh- charm, yeah. Him. By the way, uh, this is me looking way into it before I'm I shouldn't even start this way because then you guys are gonna think I'm crazy before I start getting into the philosophy of it. But that shot mm. of when he's doing the uncertainty principle, it's lit like it. a
0: play. It's a circular spot. It's a circular, and it's got with the jail bars, bars over him. Yeah.
1: I wonder if the Conan brothers thought about or Deacon's thought about the fact that that looks like the wave dualities. Yeah, like it split, looks like the double
0: slit experiment, double split. which is what proved the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Yeah, more yeah. or less.
1: Uh, and it's possibly, just, possibly, it just it's, feels too like. I don't think they care about physics, so I wouldn't assume
0: it's it. lit so dramatically. But I also think because this is a black and white noir. They're also just reveling in their craft. There's shots throughout this where it's like, well, they just always wanted to shoot a gorgeous black and white shot of 10 pianos with smoke blowing in, because that's a cool... Pianos are sleek and black, and smoke is white and billowy. Right. Uh, Yeah. Well, the last thing... I mean, and and you can, of course, start new tangents, but the last thing I knew that I want to bring up for Pedagogy, personally, is I'm going to read an interchange and then a line from his final... VL that I think are two of the most resonant lines and then just I just want to discuss what we think that's about Because obviously he's a barber. So hair hair is the central metaphor of his life
1: And he th- talks about hair growing. Yeah, after death. so
0: at this at the barbershop. He says to Frankie Frank What? This hair. Oh, yeah, what you ever wonder about it? What and this is the most he's ever talked to Frankie by the way, it just keeps growing It just keeps coming, Frankie says. Lucky for us. Ed says, no, I mean hair. It's a part of us, and we just cut it off and throw it away. And Frankie says, come on, you're going to scare the kid whose hair he's cutting. Then the kid leaves, and then Ed says, okay, now I'm going to go out and take this hair, and I'm going to go throw it in the dirt. Frank says, what? What? (laughs) And he says, I'm going to mingle it with common house dirt. Frank says, how hell are you talking about? Right. And Ed says, skip it. And I think the phrasing there makes it clear that he is having a philosophical moment. Right. He's not being an idiot and saying, no, I'm going to go mingle this with common house dirt. That's a funny phrase. He's saying, what does it mean? No, really. So now the system is, I'm going to take this part of a body I just cut off someone, and I'm going to just put it in the dirt. But a second ago... It was really important to that person and connected to them.
1: them,
0: Um, And then later, of course, yeah, he says, the hair keeps growing after you die. By the way, not true. It's actually just that your body starts to shrivel up so your hair and nails look like they're growing. Um, (laughs) Take that! uh, But but let's say it's true because he says, the hair keeps growing after you die. I suppose mine will too. What makes it grow? Does the soul make the hair keep growing? And when does the hair stop? is it when the soul is it when the hair realizes the soul is gone
1: uh what, what does that mean <laughs> uh i mean the smacks of john the baptist why does he
0: care why is the idea that your hair keeps growing after you die powerful to ed crane you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah what does that
0: illuminate about him
1: uh because i think it comes from my personal read was the john the baptist thing which is also our other favorite thing that you and i both like about deadwood which mm. has a, a, a a huge arc in one of its seasons given to this, which is uh, does not the hand suffer when the leg suffers? It's the idea of the community of body. Uh, The body, like the community of the town, or in this case, in the community of life, one suffering, everyone kind of feels it. It's like a way to convince yourself that there's this altruistic kind of nature to community and uh, social being social animals, Mm -hmm. we play into those games. And he does not. He, Ed Crane, is anti-social, you know? Um, And I think that this is him coming to terms with, I don't see the difference between this dirt and the dirt when it's on your head. Yeah, But everyone agrees that the second it's cut off, it's nonsense. Like, so when he says, like, I'm going to go mix it with house dirt, (laughs) he's trying to get out of, uh, he's trying to get out of um, Frankie. Frankie that... Yeah, that is a really weird thing that we do. We just choose to discard it. And, yeah. like, why do we do that? That's such a weird, elaborate fiction that we all made up and decided to run with. But he's not going to get that from Frankie. He's mm-hmm. not going to... He is trying to speak like a someone who is a seer, like a Buddha, uh, about something that no one really cares about. Uh, and that's, to me, what that sequence is, is that it's he's grasping yeah. for straws and to and maybe it is,
0: it's showing... Illuminating that he can't see the difference between matter. Right. Like, well, this matter is composed into a human body. Why is that different than an equal amount of matter that's a pile of rocks? The more interesting question
1: to me is why try? So That's the only moment he ever is like,
0: I'm going to philosophize. I'm going to figure something out. I'm going to say something
1: to (laughs) to Frankie because that's the thing with it is that if he really did believe that there is no purpose to like this, I guess this placeholder or metaphor for community, or in this case, just the body and the fact that or it grows on after you die. Is it the soul carrying about
0: something because it came from another why living human double yeah.
1: check with your fellow man? If you don't actually believe it, I think he's starting to believe it. Right. That's why I think he's starting to believe that that's his midlife crisis. Is he's like, I've always well, thought and that life is this way. And why it's would not. he try
0: what he tries with Scarlet? Yeah. Unless he was deciding I want to, Maybe I'll practice feeling I, maybe right. I do want to try and see if I can feel something. Yeah,
1: maybe I truly have been, like, I'm thicker in the maze than I thought I was, and I need more perspective, mm-hmm. which is yet another one, him his flaw running away with him. He thinks that he's capable of that, and I think that's what the Coen brothers are doing, is saying that he is flawed all, for yeah. this reason, and his flaw is also what takes him to sleep for the It's the interesting how sleep.
0: he seems to think he's superior to everyone because he's so aloof, or, like, yeah, being able to look at the maze will let him outplan everyone. <coughs> I think he, he does, sucks. He's average. He doesn't act. He's like than a now. man of average intelligence. It's not a
1: flaw in the way that we perceive because he doesn't do that, but he definitely only is occupied. His thoughts are only occupied about how like it's like if we're if someone one of your friends was always just talking about how we all came from monkeys. Right. I mean, just, more like it seems Jor- Jordan like, Peterson. Forget him example. as a living
0: fake human. It seems like the Coens are going out of their way to say. Because in many, many films, the trope is uh, if you're that guy who's completely separated from society, it gives you some magic ability. You're a god. You, you're 10 steps ahead of everyone all the time yeah. because you're a sociopath. You're counting cards. I like how they went out of their way to say, being a sociopath doesn't make you automatically great at crime right. either. No. He's average at it. No, he's <laughs> actually bad at it. He's pretty bad. But then so, like sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Although he is bad in the sense that he's like... Here's my $10,000. You're not going <laughs> to screw me on this. The guy goes, no. No. You want to sign a contract? And he goes, no, nah, I trust you. And it's like, what? He what? offered. Get I the contract. Like
1: the, oh, I, he's like taken aback, you know, like uh, about the contract. And we never
0: know whether Creighton Tolliver was planning to screw him or not. He indeed could have been planning to
1: open a yeah. laundromat. Uh, We didn't get to see the observation because he died. So yeah. the experiment hadn't happened yet. Exactly. Um, I think that that's... I like this idea that he's an American Buddha because it kind of eats its own tail because mm-hmm. uh, something about, like, this Daily era Bob of <laughs> Nice. Uh, the, it's something about this time. It's something about, uh, you know, not consumerism per se, but, like, that bar, that good life from 1950s, everyone had a part of the community to provide, and we all, the white picket fence was the American dream. And then to throw someone like a Siddhartha into the mix is just like, you're not helping this community. There's a lot, you probably would be useful to this community, but you're not helping them. They're not going to receive this wisdom. And then for him to combat it with absolute isolation, is uh, that, of course, that would happen. You know, of right. course, the uh, stranger would be outsourced to a different community or no community at all. Um, or eventually end up where we put people that don't fit in, which is jail and debt. Right. Dead. And that's yeah. one of the things of this is kind of a how do you do that? But I mean, I'm feeling No, Yeah, let's move up. on. Uh, uh, I believe they shot this in color.
0: Oh, and then graded it to yeah, black and white? Yeah, they knew what they were oh. doing.
1: But this is another way that it's just like Roger Deacon's. We haven't really. Gone crazy with Roger Deakins that much yet? We all have said we loved him and stuff. This one's this good. is. It didn't blow my mind. Calling your visually. shot from mm-hmm. color. Where remember when like, that's true. That's Wizard true. Wizard of Oz and uh, and 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 films that predated that they used. Like it is now an art form that is not even used anymore. People don't know how to do this, which is like what tone of pink is the perfect tone next to a tone of green that makes for that you know black and white magic that once you actually take out all of the color space, it looks the perfect shade of gray.
0: Right. Like Hershey's syrup in psycho looks
1: better than blood. Right. Fake blood. Exactly. Yeah, so you, so we're living in a world in two or in 2001, they're living in a world where there's no one who really is an expert on this. And this film looks like one of those films. It looks like it was shot in black and white on black and right. white film stock. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's, uh, and so that's all that Deacon's is impressive. calling. Very impressive. I mean, he's got some tools. There's like color temperature readers and, mm-hmm. you know, ways to. And so brightness is really more of an impact than hue. But the hue, depending on the sensitivity of the film stock, can make something that is like film stocks are designed sometimes to be like, I want the face to look super vibrant. So the they put in the film stock literally things that make it a little bit like reds are good and browns are good, but like let's play down the blues and play down the, uh, the, the, the pinks and the, the greens. Um, so this guy is making like Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake movies, uh, where it's not, it's like the mid tones are really reduced. It's not like an old film noir movie. It's not like that in this he's using a wider palette. He, when we go to jail and Billy Bob is talking to Fran uh, across the table, uh, it has this like pastel gray look and nothing is black and white. Uh, and it's just, it's like a John Alton film, I think is one of the quotes that Deacon's had. And if you've seen any of that, it's got like a real wide range that makes it look really painterly in a unique way that even when they were making black and white movies, they weren't doing a lot of. Now, maybe it's, you know, our, tastes have changed but I think it's just like this is just if I ever have to point to Deacons on like how is this guy better than almost everyone else it's because he can like line up a shot and call it like that mm. with like that color is going to look like this and then the image is looking like that when we go black and white and they're still shooting on film this is 2001 uh obviously they got to play with it after they because they went full on even the Coen brothers went full on digital uh coloring after the fact uh after oh brother where art thou yeah so like it doesn't really use extreme shadows like noir as no, heavily as noir
0: does it's not really a film noir right visually right,
1: right. but it there's it's like a movie
0: movie but it's you just shot in black you and take
1: white most of the and there actually exists you can find it on youtube if you do want to watch it color footage there's the whole movie cool. i think yeah uh but it's it's, I bet weird. it's not as good yeah i mean there's something about the black and mm-hmm. white that makes it feel isolated and, you know, of course, hearkening. But also, girl. the
0: color footage, like you just said, they would have been different colors if they knew it was going to be color. Yeah, I mean, so it's not intended to the be The opening seen that shot way.
1: with the spiraling, like, barber pole, like, that feels off already because it's like a vibrant red.
0: Yeah, sure. You know?
1: And it's, uh, so that's just something on why Deacons is, like, the, the ultimate craftsman. Yeah. I mean, he's just out of nowhere just saying, like, I bet that's going to look great. Yeah. <laughs> And he has no real reason to believe that other than intuition and knowledge and working in uh, film as a medium for so long. Just like them in the rehearsal, going, "That's the take. Just do it like that on the day. right, yeah. right, right." This so, team calls it ahead of time. So I had to, I had to call him out for that. And I, th- I think I mentioned in the last podcast with the, uh, with O brother. This is one I think of his. Crown Jewels, you know, I think this is one of the feathers in his uh, cap, but uh, it's hard to say that he lost the Oscar for cinematography to, um, uh, I forget his name, but Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is another visually mm-hmm. accosting fucking amazing film. Um, but man, man, man. Oh, man. Wasn't
0: There is not visually accosting. Its craftsmanship is very subtle, I, it's don't, a- I don't think. Like an average person watching those back to back would definitely say one is loud, one is would definitely say I don't know. The camera shots in that Tiger movie seemed harder. (laughs) Like they look harder. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I say what you want about the Academy. I don't particularly love how they determine Mm. those things. But I just want if. I guess the way I feel about it is if uh, Deacons cares about it, I would care about it. Just because no. like, I think he should get everything he wants. Because he's got, as I say, Baptist fallen from the Raftis, mm. But he doesn't really have Oscars. He, I think he won his first one just recently, right? Yeah, but I f- forget what for. I forget what for. No Country?
0: No, it wasn't even. It was even more Sky recent fall, than that. Skyfall, maybe? Oh. I think it was for fucking Skyfall. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, that's a son of a woman. Get right there! It's like you don't get it for no Man. country. You don't get it for yeah.
1: Shawshank Redemption. Come on! All right, that's really all I had, all I wanted to talk nice. about. I ran about it. How are we doing on time? Um,
0: I think we're good to wrap up, and I would like to dedicate this me- this episode to the memory of Guzzy, who worked heads up in Santa Clara until his ticker stopped one day oh. in the middle of a July flat top. <laughs> Guzzy, R.I.P. R. R. P. Guzzy.
1: All right.